Welcome to the ICAEW Insights Podcast. Hello and welcome to this first ICAW Insights Podcast, where we analyse the latest news from the world of accountancy, business and finance. I'm your host, Tom Herbert, and on today's show, with news that the government is considering moving tax year-end away from 5th of April, what impact could this have on businesses and individuals? With the first coronavirus bounce-back loans now falling due for repayment, what should businesses consider when drawing up their plans for the rest of 2021 and beyond? And you can't get away from cryptocurrency in the press, but should chartered accountants be taking a closer look? Later on in the show, we'll also be focusing on business restructuring and insolvency, and analysing what might happen when the government's coronavirus support is finally withdrawn in September. But before all that, let's meet our guests. Firstly, Director Technical Strategy Business Group from ICAW, it's Philippa Kelly. Hi, Philippa. Hi, Tom. Nice to be here. And joining us to talk all things tax, it's ICAW's Technical Tax Editor, Lindsay Wicks. Hi, Lindsay. Hi, Tom. Thanks for having me. And rounding off our podcast trio for today is Mike Jervis, who is a restructuring and insolvency partner at PwC. Hi, Mike. Hi, Tom. Thanks for having me too. Great to have you all with us. Let's start with news that the Office for Tax Simplification has confirmed that it's reviewing the implications of moving the UK's tax year end from 5th of April, with the review focusing on a move to either 31st of March or 31st of December. It's a tough one to sum up uh, briefly, Lindsay, but can you tell us, first of all, why tax year end is 5th of April? Well, it's one of those historical accidents, really. Um, So ICAW members may remember from their studies that rent was paid on quarter days, which were the 25th of March, 24th of June, 29th of September and 25th of December. Now, the first of those was Lady Day, and that was the start of the tax year, so 25th of March. But back in 1752, we had our calendar adjusted by 11 days. Now, there were riots about people losing 11 days of the year, so they didn't change the tax year. And so the tax year moved to the 5th of April to end on the 4th of April. And then we had another adjustment by one day. We didn't have a leap year in 1800. So at that point, the end of the tax year became 5th of April. My goodness. So, uh, yeah, a bit of a bit of a history lesson to start the podcast. Thank you, Lindsay. Um, the OTS describes the review as a high level exploration of the issues. What sorts of things are they going to be looking at? So their main focus is on um, shortening the tax year by five days to the 31st of March. But they're also looking at some alternative approaches um, to address practical issues of having a 5th of April year end. And then they're also going to look at the broader issues and costs and benefits of potentially shortening the tax year by three months and five days to the 31st of December. And that's a date that's often favoured internationally because a lot of our um, other countries use the 31st of December. But in doing this, they're going to look at exchequer impacts. They're going to look at admin burdens on taxpayers. They're going to look at how HMRC systems could cope with the change, the impact on other government departments and, as I mentioned, also the international aspects that need to be considered. Why are they looking at this now? I mean, it was kicked off last year. Um, So last year, the OTS had its 10th anniversary conference and people raised in that that, you know, is it now time to have a debate on the 10 year? We've got the 10 year digital strategy for HMRC. And should we also, as part of that, be looking at changing the tax year end is now the right time? And um, the OTS board encouraged the team to look at changing the tax year end, which is why they're now looking at it. It's obviously difficult to say sort of if and when 
change will come. But but for starters, when will the OTS report on this come out? They're going to report back in the summer. But before then, because um, ICAW is keen to host the debate on this, we're having a Wyman symposium on the 13th of July. In that, we're going to look at the Irish experience of changing the tax year end. We've got um, Nora Collander from Chartered Accountants Ireland speaking to that. So Ireland changed their tax year end back in 2002 when they entered the euro from same as us, 5th of April to 31st December. Jill Springbet's going to be looking at the SME client practice experience of potentially changing the tax year end. Um, Steve Wade from EY is going to look at payroll and software implications. And then um, Martin Wheatcroft is going to look at the potential impact on public finances of the change. Fascinating. And that's on the 13th of July. Great. And uh, if you're interested and you want to find out more, then uh, there'll be a link to that um, Wyman Symposium on the show notes, or you can check out icaw.com forward slash insights for more information. Thank you, Lindsay. Now, if a business took out a bounce back loan last year, it's likely that they've been contacted by their bank about repayment. If those repayments are not affordable, particularly with the recent delay to lockdown easing, what options are available? Um, Philippa, you, you wrote a piece about this for us uh, based on the, the excellent help sheet from the Financial Services Faculty, um, a link to which can be found in the show notes for this podcast. Um, so, so Philippa, can you first of all give us a quick reminder of the, the headlines? So, so how much was lent? Um, when was this debt due? And, and what the repayment options are? So I think we probably all remember quite vividly, it was a bit of a whirlwind of the various government loan schemes being announced, some changes to to the way that they were working, and a lot of money coming out of the banks and into business very quickly um, mid last year. But when the scheme closed, just over £46.5 billion had been lent out to 1.5 million businesses under the bounce back loan scheme. And there was actually over 2 million businesses who had applied for a bounce back loan. So it all happened very rapidly, as I mentioned, with over half of total lending being made by June 2020. So as you've noted, many businesses will be making their first repayment this month, where they've had those first 12 months without having to make a repayment. Mm. UK Finance were actually speaking on a webinar with Chartered Banker last week that I managed to catch. and. They said that the signs so far are actually quite good in that most businesses had made their first repayments when they become due and that generally missed payments were a bit lower than feared. That's good. Yeah, there were certainly um, certainly fears. That I think, think that there were there were certainly work done by the um, National Audit Office on uh, on, on potential um, for, for non-repayments, as it were. No, absolutely. And it, it really has been up and down with with all the various uncertainties going on and um, obviously this is that first wave of people who have borrowed whose loans are now coming due so we will we'll see what happens over the rest of the year. You mentioned uncertainties there um, how do you think the recent extension of lockdown measures affects things? It's a really mixed picture for businesses at the minute so anecdotally we know that there are quite a lot of businesses that actually haven't yet used their bounce back loan and may well seek to repay it early and and took it out at the time because things were so uncertain but haven't actually come to the point because they've been able to to pivot the way they do things or have 
have fared okay, um, haven't had to use that money. But for many, particularly in parts of the hospitality industry, they haven't been able to operate anything like resembling their previous fashion yet. So they may not have the cash flow that they need to start repaying those loans as they fall due. There have been sort of recovery loan schemes that, that, that have been sort of mooted to um, or sort of put in place to um, uh, supplement them, um, as, as it were. But um, they've sort of seen less of an uptake. Is, is that right? Yeah. So the as you say, the broader picture is, is still challenging. So in a recent announcement from the government about extending um, protection from eviction for businesses who've had to remain closed and can't pay their rent, um, there will be other things that businesses are considering, like having to start to contribute to the furlough scheme from next month and the, the wind up of that in a few months time. And there is that recovery loan scheme there to help businesses who, who do need small cash flow over that period. But the uptake hasn't perhaps been as, as people thought it might be. So it is a more expensive scheme. There is an interest rate and fee cap of 14.99%. But if we think of that in comparison to the 2.5% um, rate on the bounce back loan scheme and you know the, the record low base rates at the minute, it, it might not be the best option and there are more stringent credit checks. But for businesses who are looking at how do we bridge that gap and the help sheet that you mentioned that that's linked in the show notes has got some various things that businesses or their advisors might want to consider if they do need to consider whether or not they can repay. Okay, great. Um, thank you, Philippa. Let's let's go over to Mike Jervis from PwC on this. Um, Mike, are you able to give us an idea of what's happening above that bounce back loan threshold and, and how much of this debt is likely to be recoverable? The Office for Budget Responsibility um, have produced some numbers on this and they estimate that across all of these business interruption loans, so including bounce back loans and then going to the higher levels of COVID facilities, something like 30%, three zero would be irrecoverable um, against a gross amount of, I think, 76 billion. You know, that's, uh, that's about 22, 23 uh, billion pounds. Recoverable is, is, a, is, a, is a very sort of complex word, um, if you like. But um, what's clear to me, because of the enormity of these numbers and the number of businesses impacted, we will see extension of term. So terming out the repayment period uh, for the loans. Uh, and in the bigger cases, we may see British Business Bank or HM government effectively taking equity in, in return for, for debt where companies are unable to pay over an, uh, an acceptable time period. Goodness, right. Thank you, Mike. And thank you, Philippa. Now, let's take you back a couple of weeks to the agreement announced by finance ministers from the G7 that would see multinationals pay tax of at least 15% in each country they operate. There was a lot of coverage of the announcement, but from a chartered accountant's point of view, details were a little scant. Lindsay, can you just give us a brief outline of, of what happened? Yeah, sure. I mean, this work's been ongoing for quite a while now. So back in October 2020, um, the OECD issued its blueprints known as Pillar 1 and Pillar 2. And these were hundreds and hundreds of pages of its thoughts on what should happen. And there's two things, really. Pillar 1 is about um, tax allocation rules, so allocating profits between different countries. Um, and Pillar 2 is the 
minimum amount of tax. So that 15% rate that um, the press picked up on. So um, pillar one was talking about having a taxing right on automated digital services and consumer facing businesses. And there was a slight shift in what came out from the G7. So they're saying it's for the largest and most profitable businesses. I mean, that's still an undefined term. So it'd be interesting to see what businesses are um, going to be affected by this. And it's to create a new taxing right for jurisdictions where there's a market, but perhaps the company hasn't got a taxable presence there. And at the same time, they want removal of all digital services taxes. So a lot of countries have been taking action unilaterally by having their own digital services taxes, and they want that removed for all companies. So um, there'll probably be a mismatch between companies that are currently subject to digital services taxes and these largest and most profitable companies. So that's something that we'll we'll get a bit more detail on as things go forwards. And they come up with the formulaic way of allocating these profits. So it would be at least 20% of their residual profit above a 10% profit level will be allocated to market jurisdictions. The other bit, the 15%, is not the rate that countries will have to adopt. So countries won't have to have a 15% minimum rate it will be top up effectively so it's a a set of coordinated measures that will top up the tax rate on cross-border income now that could be a parent jurisdiction top up or it could be the jurisdiction making deductible payments and the oecd previously has suggested that that would apply to groups with revenues over 750 million euros so again we've got a little bit of detail but not all of the detail that the OECD were talking about. And there were another couple of things missing. So another thing that the OECD was talking about was having coordination to create certainty around the tax treatment of these profits and also having another amount allocated, which is a fixed return on marketing and distribution activities. And again, the G7 statement was silent on that. Interesting. Thank you, Lindsay. Um, in terms of next steps, then, um, what what's going to likely be uh, the, the the sort of thing that gets this moving forward, as it were? Yeah, well, the G7 have effectively created some momentum here, but the next steps are the OECD and G20 inclusive frame, framework, which is 139 countries, not seven, um, are due to meet on the 30th of June and 1st of July um, to look at the next steps. And then the G20 finance ministers are meeting on the 9th and 10th of July. So hopefully we'll find out a bit more detail following those two important meetings. Great. Thank you, Lindsay. Finally, for part one, let's move to the dramatic world of cryptocurrency, where hundreds of millions of dollars can be wiped out by a single tweet. may seem a world away from the work that many chartered accountants do, but the reality is that cryptocurrencies are beginning to encroach on people's lives on a more regular basis. Philippa, fairly basic question, but should chartered accountants care about cryptocurrency? It really seems like crypto is the never-ending headline at the moment, doesn't it? We had um, a couple over the weekend, so about some of the banks restricting and transfers to some of the crypto platforms. There was the FCA's latest round of consumer research. And there are just an increasing number of considerations for chartered accountants as it begins to stray into their professional lives as well as what they might be reading on the news or hearing 
around. Um, and I think we, we do need to care about cryptocurrency, both as an asset class, but also as something that is changing the nature of the financial system, whether we, we like it or not. Um, mm. There's a huge amount of hype and momentum at the moment. And I think as a as a professional, it, it's something that you can't avoid the need to be at least a bit informed about, even if it's not something you're thinking of dabbling in yourself or that your clients have started to, to use yet. What are the potential implications and challenges for chartered accountants when dealing with cryptocurrencies, you say, either as a, a sort of asset class or, or, or um, as it impinges a bit more on, on the financial system? I think part of the challenge is just the the breadth of, of different things that it can, can impact and some of the, the risks that it holds, but also the, the opportunities if we are to, to get it right. Um, so it was interesting in the FCA's research that um, they said that more people are holding cryptocurrency, but actually even though more people are holding it, fewer overall understand it. So if you're giving financial planning advice, I would say that would be something that you'd want to be aware of as you get more questions from individuals who are looking at this as a, a realistic part of a broader portfolio going forward and be able to give them a balanced view. I think if you are working in a business or with a business and there's a desire to look at either holding or starting to trade in some sort of cryptocurrency, then there's a lot of different implications that you need to understand. And it's not just about the balance sheet because actually the the fundamentals around accounting will remain fairly consistent but actually what about the sustainability of cryptocurrency and is your is your business prepared to look at that and the the environmental impact that it has um the anti-money laundering concerns around it so we had some views expressed by andrew bailey i think last week or the week before the national crime agency as well saying we know this is moving forward. We know the use cases are starting to come through, but actually we need the the framework and the infrastructure there in place. So I think we're at a, a weird moment in terms of hype and momentum that there are all of these inherent challenges and the speed of adoption is perhaps making it difficult to solve some of those issues before we see it being used more and more broadly. And I think that's something that we really need to be aware of as a profession and, and our role in, in helping to make sure that structure works as it does start to emerge. Yeah, thank you, Philippa. Um, just um, to wrap up this 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 part, um, Lindsay, what's HMRC's current position on cryptocurrency? Well, what HMRC is quite clear on is that it's not gambling because gambling winnings wouldn't be taxable and holding cryptocurrency is taxable. So if it's an investment held as an investment, then you might be looking at capital gains tax. If you're a little bit more active in your trading, then you might be looking at income tax. Um, if employers are using it to reward their employees, then there's obviously income tax and national insurance implications. So really, you just need to look at HMRC's guidance on, on its views on how it considers cryptocurrency and crypto assets are taxed. Great. Thank you both. Um, that's it for part one. So join us after this quick break when we'll be delving into the world of business restructuring and insolvency. You're listening to the ICAW Insights podcast. Business insolvency figures remain at a lower level than before the pandemic struck, and that's mainly down to the level of support provided by the government in grants and loans. 
However, the majority of this support ends in September, and we've already seen a mild uptick in the number of business insolvencies in May 2021, which rose by 9% compared to the previous month and is 7% up on May last year. Many are predicting the greatest change to the business landscape in a generation, and uh, over the past two months, ICAW Insights has run a series of pieces on factors affecting business restructuring and insolvency called Business Rescue, a link to which can be found in the show notes. As a partner in the restructuring and insolvency division at PwC, it's fair to say that Mike Jervis has a better understanding than most of the issues at play, and he's still on the line. Um, Mike, where are we headed once government support starts to taper down? Is there a best or worst case scenario? I think uh, we're in certainly an unprecedented um, uh, state of flux at the moment. We, we've seen a lot of government support and interestingly we continue to see support and, and support in a structured way. So last week um, the government extended the moratorium on landlords taking tenants to court for non-payment of rent and that was extended to March 2022. Simultaneously, uh, the government, albeit the details not very clear, but the government has um, ordained that landlords and tenants should ring fence rent arrears uh, and then negotiate and reach agreement on how they get paid with a clear steer to sharing the pain between landlords and tenants. And if they don't negotiate successfully, then uh, the government proposal is to put that to a binding arbitration. And, and the point about really talking uh, about that story or, the, or that piece of legislation is that there is evidence um, that support is not just going to come off the edge of the cliff, so to speak, at the end of September, but there's evidence that the support will go on in a structured way for some time. Um, we're seeing a similar positive um, attitude from HMRC in relation to uh, liabilities which have built up in respect of uh, taxes uh, during this period. And I think in in a way that is different from what happened in 2008 and 2009 when we had the global financial crisis, I think lenders um, are affording a, a great deal more forbearance uh, to companies than maybe they, they have in the past. Hmm. So when you put all those factors together uh, and you also bring into account the availability of investment finance. Um, I, I don't think we're going to see a, a massive increase. I think we'll see uh, a gradual tapering up of, of insolvencies, but I don't think we'll see that Armageddon scenario uh, over the next 12 months. Thank you, Mike. And we'll come back to the um, investment side of things shortly. But as we slowly emerge from lockdown measures, what are the key priorities for businesses over the next three to six months? Tom, I think there are three main priorities, and, and, and these don't always vary um, from cycle to cycle, but the absolute first one is to make sure as a business you have sufficient cash headroom uh, to come out of uh, the pandemic period and to continue to trade uh, and trade at your potential. I think related to that is is how you forecast and uh, we often talk in the restructuring world about forecasts and the quality of forecasts. But what your cash headroom is or equates to is really um, to be compared to the quality of your forecast. And we, we're getting asked a lot uh, by companies at the moment as to how should they forecast. Uh, and some companies are saying, 
I'm going to forecast, for example, that by the end of 2021, I will recover to 2019 levels of turnover and profitability. That seems to me to be a, a very sweeping approach to forecasts, which need to be undertaken uh, in a lot more depth. I think because of the changes in society and customer behavior, businesses need to assess what impact that's going to be and, and have on their business. Uh, mm. Things like restaurant businesses, you know, how many, how many covers, uh, for example, are they able to actually accommodate? I think the other thing that um, businesses have gone through the last 12 or 15 months with a lower cost base uh, and examining that cost base and seeing what's needed uh, as part of their uh, look forward forecasts uh, is another, I think, really, really uh, important aspect to get right. So, so cash, quality of forecasts. And then my final point would be stakeholder management. Uh, I mentioned before landlords and tenants uh, engaging with each other. That's just one example. But um, businesses need to not keep their heads in the ground, which some people have done over the last 12 months or so. But they need to come out and come up with proposals as to how to deal with the debt and arrears backlog, which has built up in many businesses uh, over the recent 12 months. Thank you, Mike. Um, We've talked about some of the more general government help available. More specifically, have there been any positive changes in the insolvency tools available to help companies recover from the pandemic? Uh, They have, Tom, and and I find them quite exciting. Um, In in June of last year, so 12 months ago, uh, there was an insolvency um, uh, act called the um, Corporate Insolvency and Governance Act, or SEGA 2020, which introduced um, two new procedures. It introduced what's called a restructuring plan. And secondarily, it introduced the process of moratorium. The restructuring plan is based upon the US Chapter 11 uh, type of uh, procedure where directors and management stay in control. They get protection um, from creditor action. And at the same time, they're able to um, put together deals which are blessed by the court as to how creditors are treated as part of the business uh, going forward. And we've seen uh, around 10 of those take place, uh, which may not sound like a big number, but these have been for large companies. So Virgin Active, we saw NCP has recently uh, announced one. We've seen Virgin Atlantic, uh, we've seen Peter Express, etc. So, so large companies are making use of this new procedure uh, and the courts are taking a very pragmatic uh, attitude towards it. So it's a really important new tool in the kit bag uh, when it comes to rescuing companies and businesses which have been impacted by the pandemic. Thank you, Mike. Um, finally, for this section, um, what happens if you're a company that can't survive the crisis with its current resources um, and needs to raise funds or, or otherwise seek investment? Is there capital out there seeking investment opportunities? And, and how can um, companies prepare for this? The phrase dry, dry powder is written about a lot. Um, but the dry powder, which is equity and debt funding uh, for businesses, is is very much alive and well. It's uh, reported to be worth globally $2.6 billion, which is a very big number. As a comparator, if you look at the 2007 period again, the dry powder or capital available for investment was less than half of that uh, going back to, to that um, uh, particular crisis. So there's definitely capital out there. Um, we've seen a lot of transactions uh, during the last 12 months where private equity and private capital 
has invested in businesses which are generally good businesses, albeit a number of them have become uh, stressed as a result of the pandemic. And there's competition for those businesses as well, which is good news if you're running uh, an attractive business um, that's been impacted adversely by, by COVID. In terms of how you get ready to put yourself, if you like, in the shop window for that type of investment, it really is getting ready for a robust uh, due diligence to have quality information, quality forecasts, uh, as I spoke about before, short-term uh, cash flow forecasts, which are meaningful, and a clear understanding of how the business uh, makes uh, profits, which products are profitable, and how the business intends to manage itself going forward. Fascinating stuff. Thank you, Mike. Well, that's all we have time for today. A huge thanks to Philippa Kelly, Lindsay Wicks and Mike Jervis. You can read more detailed coverage of all the topics mentioned on the show via the show notes or go to icaw.com forward slash insights. Thank you very much for listening and we hope you'll tune in next time. Bye for now. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you want to hear more from ICAEW, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. 